Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We're continuing today in our series called Life Illustrated. So named because we're studying some of the 30 plus parables that Jesus used to teach some serious lessons to his listeners about life and life in the kingdom of God. We've already mentioned in this series that parables were a device that Jesus used to throw a story alongside of a truth. He was teaching to illustrate in a way that listeners readily identified with. So he had a point, and then he told a story to kind of illustrate, to illustrate life, life illustrated in that parable. Last week, Pastor Chris Carr taught us so well and uh, some amazing truths on the parable of the sower and the seeds and mentioned that it was a parable within a parable. Well, today, we're going to talk about a pair of parables and throw in a paradox on top of that. So to begin, I want to set the table for you on where we drop in on Jesus in Luke chapter 14. It's the Sabbath day. It's some unnamed town of Israel. We're not sure where. Jesus has been invited to the home of a local well-to-do religious leader, a Pharisee, for dinner. In a few moments, he's going to mention a wedding feast in his parable, but there's no specific mention as to whether this was such an occasion that Jesus was involved in at the Pharisee's home or not. The reason being that the social culture of the day dictated that as a visiting rabbi, Jesus would have been the guest of honor in the town. It was therefore considered an act of merit and honor to be his host while he was in town, and that honor went to the most prominent Pharisee, and it was his duty then and honor to invite this rabbi home for dinner, especially after he had taught. So almost certainly, Jesus has been teaching earlier that day in the local synagogue. Right from the first verse, though, we see that there is more to this than meets the eye at first glance. This is much more than simply a gracious invitation and celebration. It's a setup. Luke tells us that Jesus is being carefully watched. Word of Jesus had already come to these Pharisees, and they knew him to be at odds with them and their traditions and their beliefs and their practices. Very quickly, we begin to understand that Jesus has not been invited for the hospitality of it, but for the hostility of it. The guest list is made up of the Pharisees in the town, Jesus, and just one other person, a man who is afflicted with a strange-sounding ailment known as dropsy. It was a term used to describe abnormal swelling due to any number of ailments. Seems to me it might have been more appropriately called droopsy, but that's just me. The, the, this man seems hardly to have been there by chance, though. Even though he is not described as a Pharisee, we are pretty certain he's not, he must have been invited specifically for a purpose because no self-respecting prominent Pharisee would allow such a man suffering from something like this into his home with this condition otherwise. So what gives here? Well, it's obvious then that this man has been clearly placed here for this moment, knowing that his ailment is very obvious, sight, you can see that he's swollen, and that Jesus' compassion is going to kick in. Jesus' compassion was so, don't you, like this is a little sideline to the whole story. It's so amazing that they know how consistent Jesus' compassion is. They know he's not just going to look at him and turn away. They know this. And sure enough, that's what happens. 
Jesus comes into this. Can you picture this scene? The stiff, anticipatory silence as all these Pharisees watch Jesus come into the home, watch his eyes rove around for a minute, and then fix on the pathetic sight of this man suffering from this swelling. The Pharisees give little knowing nods to each other, knowing the trap is working, we got him. But Jesus sees where this is going. He's been there before with Pharisees. He knows their treachery, and he heads them off at the pass. Before even healing the man, he turns to these silent skeptics and asks them whether or not the law permitted healing on the Sabbath. He knows exactly where this is going. Jesus cuts right to the core of the dilemma for the Pharisees. Their traditions, their teachings clearly forbade healing on the Sabbath. The law of Moses, however, did not forbid healing on the Sabbath. Indeed, if the Sabbath was made for man, as we're told, for his benefit, for his blessing, how could one refrain from healing then on the Sabbath if he had the ability to do so? They wouldn't answer the question. They knew they were caught. Clearly, they did not want to discuss this matter openly in order to learn from him or exchange ideas. Keeping silent, they thought, would keep their devious plan in place and perhaps result in Jesus healing the man, and they were oh so right. Jesus took hold of the man and healed him right there and then sent him on his way. Jesus knew the man was never brought in to eat in the first place and would not be allowed to do so in his condition. He was there only as bait to trap him. With the man gone, Jesus now asked the second question of the Pharisees. The first was a matter of principle. The second now is a matter of practice. It would be one thing for Jesus and his critics to differ over principle. It was a whole other thing then when these critics differed from what they professed and demanded of others and then what they practiced. So Jesus exposes their hypocrisy, their inconsistency with these words. If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it or him out? No matter what these Pharisees taught and demanded of others, they made exceptions for themselves. They thought they were sort of above the law. They actually trusted themselves to kind of stray over their lines and then come back in again without any damage. I can do this, no problem. You, on the other hand, no, you don't have the kind of upbringing and the, and the religious status that I have. You, I don't trust. You can't go over and come back. You go over, you're caught. I can do it, you can't. They had this kind of hypocrisy going on all the time, and they made exceptions for themselves. Let one of their sons or even one of their oxen fall into a well on the Sabbath, and they would work, being the operative word here, work to get it out. They would do it immediately, without thought, without hesitation, without agonizing over this tradition of no work on the Sabbath. If then they would come to the aid of their son or their cattle, why should Jesus not be allowed to heal the infirm? Their hypocrisy is showing. Again, the silence which results in this is the silence of sullen willfulness. If we say something, we're going to go down a bad path, so let's just say nothing. If there was no willingness to discuss the matter, neither is there any intention of acknowledging their hypocrisy. Silence can be a passive form of rebellion, can't it? I think every parent knows this. Silence can be a passive form of rebellion, but it's rebellion nonetheless.
the attention now switches over to the dinner itself. I can imagine you could cut the atmosphere now with a knife, and I suspect the Pharisees are none too glad to put this embarrassing silence behind them. Luke tells us that throughout the evening, Jesus has been very carefully watched. He's been very carefully watched by these Pharisees. But here's the first twist in this story. They weren't alone. Jesus was doing the very same thing. He was watching them. Because whenever he observed common everyday actions of life, Jesus knew he was actually seeing the outer fruit of what was going on in the inner attitudes of their heart. It's sobering for us to think about that, isn't it? What would Jesus see in us today? He knew he was seeing the outer fruit in these Pharisees of what was actually inside of them in their heart. Now, at first century banquets, the basic item of furniture were cushions or thick rugs for three sets of people. This is a, a picture of exactly what it would look like. You can see it's shaped in, the, in, in kind of a U-shape, uh, Cushions around three sides. It's called a triclinium because of the three sets of cushions. Triclinium. The guests would come and recline on one elbow. They would actually lie on the, on the, on the cushions or on the rugs and put their elbow down in one way in order to just kind of eat with the other arm. Very different from our practices today, obviously. I'm spending a little bit of time more on this because a feast and a triclinium are going to be central to another parable we're going to look at next week. In a triclinium, the place of highest honor was considered to be the central position at the base of the U. This is a, they still celebrate like in triclinium's. This is this picture was taken in 2012. You can see that, uh, particularly in the Middle East, they still, they still uh, honor and have feasts in this fashion at a triclinium. The place of honor would be right in the foreground there, right at the bottom of the U. Whoever sat there was the VIP, was the most important person in that place. Then spots two and three were to either side of this person, and then back and forth, so on, all the way down until you get the place of the lowest honor right at the very ends of the U on either side. So Jesus is watching as the guests are making small talk while they subtly try to maneuver themselves to the head position just before the dinner bell rings. They're just going to have little talks and just get a little closer to the bottom of the U. And then like a game of musical chairs, Jesus observed the undignified scramble for the place of highest honor. And it leads him to tell this story of the wedding banquet. When you're invited by someone, he says, to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of highest honor. Don't go right for the bottom of the U. Today, he might have said, do, do not think you deserve a seat in the middle of the head table, for instance. Jesus is about to point out that there's a real gamble in that scramble, because if a man succeeded in securing that spot, he ran a big risk. What if the host shows up now with a man who is considered to be a more important VIP? If he did in front of everyone, he would insist that you vacate the place that you've taken immediately. So the first man would have to leave that spot now, stand up, and look around the room and realize, <laughs> all the good spots are now taken. All the places of honor, the closest honor, are gone. And with shame and loss of face, as you can imagine, because you actually had to kind of like get up from the cushion, you were lying down, you had to get up and kind of look around and see where's there a gap for me and inevitably you'd end up at the bottom of the U or the top of the U at the ends anyway. Uh, and I'm guessing that's where Jesus had already positioned himself already. 
Jesus said that it is better to come and select the lowest place right off the bat because then the host may come up to you and say, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. Honestly, part of us smirks at, at these Pharisees playing musical cushions, right? Subtly making such a big deal about who gets to lay down and eat where. But I think if we pause and look a little deeper here, we will see how similar we can be to these religious leaders of long ago. We know that if you take any 10 chickens and put them in a pen with just a little bit of chicken feed, they will quickly form a pecking order. They will determine through a series of little skirmishes who's number one chicken, who's number two chicken, all the way down to the unfortunate number 10 chicken. Sheep do the same thing. Anybody remember our look at Psalm 23? Guess what we do too? A group of people cannot be together very long before our own pecking order is subtly established. And we've learned to do it, oh, in just ways that aren't so obvious, like the Pharisees. This sort of thing begins in preschool and continues all the way up until we're in the retirement home. We see the pecking order lived out in where people sit, how they greet one another, how we label one another by the location of our offices and who gets invited to social gatherings. We have a terrible tendency to think of others as either more significant than us or less significant than we are. And you know, the pecking order gives us an odd kind of comfort, really, knowing where we fit in. Oh, this is my spot. This is not there, not there. This is my spot. We can choose who we will honor with our time and attention, and we will just casually dismiss others. In verse 11, Jesus then moves from the parable to the important principle underlying his teaching. He says, for all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Here is a paradox. For Jesus says, the way up is actually down. The way up is down. To try to work up is to risk being put down. Those who wish to be honored must be humble and seek the lowly place first, he says. Those who instead strive to attain a place of honor on their own will end up being humiliated. A further reminder that the ways of our Lord and his kingdom are not our ways at all, right? We're going to come back to this pivotal verse in a few moments. Jesus is not quite finished yet, though. There's one person who still might think this parable is not directed at them because they would consider themselves the VIP. He's the one who thought his position at the table in the kingdom was secure. See, this is relating both the table before them and the table at the kingdom, the table in the kingdom of heaven. This guy thinks it's secure. Why? Because he's the host. What does it mean for a host to be humble, to humble himself? Well, Jesus knows he needs to say something more. So he says to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. You can just imagine people are starting to like sink lower on their cushions, right? If you do, they may invite you back and notice this phrase, you will be repaid. That's, a, that's being repaid sort of right there physically. They'll, you, you have them over, they'll have you over. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. You see the exact same phrase, you will be repaid, you will be blessed. 
Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is a blessing. It's getting repaid not by your peers, but by God himself. Who would you rather be repaid by? Think about it. What Jesus is laying bare here is that they all have a preoccupation with position. By mentioning the resurrection of the righteous one there, it's a clear reference to the coming kingdom of God. They would all know that going back to Isaiah 25. They would all know that's we're talking about. We're talking about the Messiah coming. We're talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. He's making it clear that this preoccupation doesn't apply to their position at the host's dinner table, but also to their position at the table in the kingdom of God. The disciples themselves have already become infected with this preoccupation with position at the table of the kingdom of God. At one point, James and John straight up asked Jesus if one of them could sit in the honored position on his right and the other at the honored position on his left. This is real time now, not part of the parable, but the timing is so beautiful. One of the Pharisees, probably feeling awkward, this is, you know, we're all sinking in our cushion here, this is getting really uncomfortable, and hoping to diffuse the situation, calls out this familiar saying back in the day. Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. See, he recognizes, as they all did, Jesus is actually, he's talking about the table in the kingdom of God. And he says, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Common expression of that day. A pious cliche, frankly. And there was an expected and equally pious answer that everybody knew to give in return. And it was, oh, and may we ourselves be counted among those who are worthy. That's what the man would expect to be said, but instead Jesus launches into another parable with a warning, which you can read on your own further on now in Luke 14. It launches him into this second parable because despite this parable that he's just given them, this um, amazing example about what humility is, he's just shared that with them. There was one thing greatly wrong with this man's statement. He spoke from the vantage point of one who would surely be, who would of course be, who no doubt would be sitting at this kingdom table. This man, like all the other Pharisees, assumed that any, anyone, if anyone were to be at this banquet in heaven, this banquet at the kingdom of God, it would be him, them, because they were the righteous ones. If I was Jesus, I think I would have just shaken my head at that point and said, did you not hear a word I just said? I just finished talking about humility, and the next thing you know, you're all counting yourselves in and, you know, at the honored spots at the table of the kingdom of God. So let's instead commit ourselves here to hearing today and exploring together today what Jesus had to say about this virtue humility that we're talking about. We get our word humility from the Greek word humilitas, which means literally low to the ground. I love that kind of picture, low to the ground. It doesn't mean be lowly. It just means consider your position, particularly when it comes to God. Being humble means to live low to the ground. 
I got to tell you, when I came in this morning and uh, early on and was listening to the worship team practice up here and, and talking to the guys in the sound booth, they were working on stage here and they were working on that first song we sang where it goes, Jesus, 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 over and over. And uh, at one point, the, the director stopped things and said, let's stay low for Jesus. And I thought, that's it. You guys could give the message. Let's just stay low for Jesus. Every single day of our lives, we face this simple test of greatness. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Exalt yourself, humble yourself. It's the simple test of greatness. In every area of our lives, over and over, we face this simple test. Exalt yourself or humble yourself. From the grandest things in life to the very simplest details, we face this test of greatness over and over and over. When it comes to deciding on careers and where we're going to live and who's going to be more important, there is this test of greatness. Exalt yourself, humble yourself. Who's going to give? Who's going to take? Exalt yourself, humble yourself. It's even in the details of life like controlling the television remote. Who's going to get to decide? Exalt yourself, humble yourself. It's the biggest things in life and the smallest details of life. Jesus says the test of greatness is this. Check one box. Exalt yourself, humble yourself. Check one in every situation you face in life. Note a particularly important word in this phrasing that Jesus uses. He says whoever exalts themselves, whoever humbles themselves. Many people think that the choice with this is all about God, all with God. God can exalt me, God can humble me. If God wants to do great things in my life, well, then great. If God wants to, me, wants to squish me under his heavenly thumb, well, I probably had that coming. But in these verses, Jesus doesn't say that at all. He says there is a choice. How many times have I stood up here and talked to you about choice? There's a choice that you and I get to make every day. Put ourselves first, exalt ourselves, or humble ourselves and see the importance of others. We've got this daily choice that counterintuitively really makes all the difference with greatness from a heavenly perspective. So let's talk about how we can be great at being humble. What does that look like? Can greatness and humility actually be spoken of in the same sentence? Can they go together in one package, one person? It's a huge question. I think a lot of people think they actually can't really go together. Because of that, they never strive toward the humility that will make them truly great, that would have them have a true impact on the world, that would make them truly have a wonderful marriage, that would make them a kind of parent that went beyond their wildest dreams. We don't see how greatness and humility go together. We don't see how both of them could be part of our lives. Some people think that being humble means you deny your greatness. You deny your desires to achieve something. But that's not what Jesus taught. Australian historian and author uh, John Dixon put it like this. Humility is not about being powerless. Humility is the choice to direct the power you have into the service of others. Humility is not about being weak. It is the noble choice to forgo your status. Did you hear choice in there? It's the noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. 
Jesus taught us instead to see that the desire for greatness and a need for humility are a part of all of our lives and to translate our desires for greatness into acts of humility. Do you see that? Desire for greatness translated into acts of humility. A decision to serve. Four times Jesus made this statement that we read just a moment ago. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We're going to bring each of them into our discussion here to help us see how humility can help and lead us to a greatness in the kingdom of God. So how does humility handle ambition? Does anybody remember a modern-day athlete whose tagline was, I am the greatest. I am the greatest, Muhammad Ali. He tells a story about himself, which says something. One time he was on a plane, and everybody was supposed to buckle up their seatbelts, but he didn't want to put his on. The flight attendant said, you have to put on your seatbelt. He answered, I'm not going to put on a seatbelt because I'm Superman. He went on about how he didn't have to put the belt on, and she kept telling him that he had to, explaining that it was a safety requirement, and the plane actually couldn't take off until he put the belt on. Back and forth, back and forth they went until finally he said, I'm not going to do it because I'm Superman and Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she said to him, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> and he put the belt on. In Matthew 18, the disciples are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. They're always kind of just lagging behind, a few steps behind Jesus. You know, you can almost hear the conversation. I, I think I did better that last, you know, miracle than you did. I think I'm better than you. I think I'm greater than you. I'm going to have a better seat at the table than you are. Back and forth. No, you're not. Yes, I am. I'm sure he could hear them as they're walking down the road. He's got to be shaking his head, but he uses it as an opportunity again to teach them what it really means to be great. In this instance, he brings a child into their midst and says, here's an object lesson that all of you guys need to get. Whoever humbles themselves like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't say, totally set, you know, how many times I got to tell you, totally set aside your feelings of ambition. Totally set aside your desires for greatness. Totally set aside the desires to change our world. See, the Bible is full of ambitious people. Did David not have ambition? Of course he did. Did the disciples have any ambitions? How about the Apostle Paul? How about Jesus himself? He said, I came to seek and to save the lost. That's ambition. It's not wrong to have ambition. It's okay to want to have a great marriage for God's sake and glory. It's okay to want to have great kids that change the world around them. Jesus didn't come up to some men and say, follow me and you won't have to do another blessed thing. No, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Ambition. I'll make you the kind of people that can change the world. You see, the problem is not that we're ambitious. The problem is what drives our ambition. If we allow pride to drive our ambition, we become ugly, prideful people, self-serving. If humility drives our ambition, we recognize that all we have comes from God, and we use it for his glory. 
There's no amount of money, no position, no recognition that can fill, fulfill our feelings of ambition like a relationship with God can. It's fulfilled by living out the plan that God has for us, by being the person that God wants us to be. God's plan begins with childlike dependence. True greatness is depending on God, like a little child. In the second instance, Jesus taught us about our need for notice and how humility handles this need for notice that all of us have. Once more, the disciples are clamoring about who's at the top and who's the most noticed, who's going to be seated close to Jesus when we get to heaven. And Jesus once again responds and says, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Is the need for notice a factor in you? in your relationships? Do your kids ever clamor for attention? Or as a husband and wife, do you ever play the it's my turn to be noticed game? Sure, we all play the game. We all have this need to be noticed. When you exalt yourself, you need others notice. That's the point. You feed off of it because it keeps you going. It keeps you feeling like, oh, I'm exalted here. When you noticed, you feel better about yourself when you're noticed. Walter Cronkite, now most of you who are young probably don't know who Walter is, but Walter used to be a very much respected news anchorman in the United States. And he recalled this following incident, again, from his own lips. Sailing back down the Mystic River in Connecticut and following the channel's tricky turns through an expanse of shallow water, I'm reminded of the time a boatload of young people sped past my wife and I, its occupants shouting and waving their arms at me as we sailed on by. I waved back a cheery greeting to them, and my wife said, Do you know what they were shouting? Why, it was, hello, Walter, he said. It was, hello, Walter. They recognized me, and they were just shouting at me, hello, Walter. No, she said. They were shouting, low water, low water, just before they went aground. I've had that happen, I can't tell you how many times, because, and it's confession time, Lauren and Lord sound very similar. And I've been walking down halls here and elsewhere where someone has just, you know, been praying or thinking, and I said, oh, Lord. And I'll turn around and go, yes. It's humiliating, right? Like, no, 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 that's not me. Ah, whoa, 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 whoa. Whenever I speak, whatever anyone says, an encouragement and, and what comes to me after I speak, there's one person who really matters, and that's what my wife Jennifer says, right? After just about every message, we'll go home and I'll just follow her around like a little puppy dog until she throws me a bone. She's so good for me. She tells me that it's not about me, it's God who works through me. And she says, just be authentic, just be yourself. Don't try to be smart. <laughs> There's just that need we have for being noticed, right? We all have this. We all want to sort of brag about something that's been, we've done. We want to be noticed. But when we start to feed off it every day, when we start to need it, when it starts to become incorporated into the reason why we do every action, every thought that we think, you're exalting yourself. Don't fool yourself. 
Jesus gave an example of this. He said, don't be like the Pharisees. Everything, everything they do is for men to see. Every action of their life was for notice. And then he gave a list of three things that they did. They made their phylacteries wide. They loved the places of honor at banquets. And they loved to have men call them rabbi. It's a pretty good list of the ways we try to get notice, even in our day. What's a phylactery? No, it's not one of the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. A phylactery, phylactery was a box with scripture in it. The wider you made it, the more it meant that you were memorizing or had memorized all these scriptures. You had all these scriptures. They were yours, and you had put them into your life, and you put them into this box. And you didn't just put this box in the pocket. You didn't just wear it, you know, take it with you in your pocket. Oh, no. You wore it around your forehead. You put it in a, in a, in a, a sling, and you tied it on your forehead so that everybody could see. Whoa, look at the size of his box. Whoa. Now, there's someone to be respected. There's someone to be noticed. You wore it on your forehead so that everybody could see, I've got it together. Look at how big my box is. It's a need for notice, friends. It's a need for notice. I can't wait to see that online. We look at these Pharisees and think, how silly, right? Yet if you think it through, we try to impress people with some pretty silly symbols, don't we? Don't get me wrong. God doesn't care about the make of car that you drive or what logo you might have on your clothes. You don't have to drive a Hyundai to be holy, okay? But God does care about why. He cares about why. Why you drive the make of car that you drive. God does care about why you wear the kind of clothes that you wear. He does care about why you live where you live. And if the whole reason behind any of those is because you want people to notice, to see, and to be impressed, Jesus said, watch out. Watch out for this. It'll tear you up. Jesus also mentions that they love to have men call them rabbi. Not only did they have the love of symbols, but they had the love of recognition, a love of titles. They love to have doctor or rabbi or whatever before their name. I knew a fellow very well, and he insisted, as long as I was around him, and every time I was around him, that I call him doctor, not by his first name. You exalt yourself when you need others' notice. The alternative is you humble yourself by noticing others' needs. You see the needs in their life, and you begin to take more and more delight in meeting those needs, helping them. We all would rather have our own needs noticed than notice others' needs. The key is recognizing that God is actually said, promised, he's going to meet all the needs in your life so you can depend on him. He's going to fulfill that. And when you recognize he's going to do that, well, then now you've got a whole new set of freedom to notice other people's needs, not your own. So how does humility handle this incredible need and tendency that we have in our lives to compare? In the third sentence where Jesus uses this phrase, in the instance and sentence, it's in this context of one of these mini parables that we talked about at the start of this series. Hmm, a mini parable on comparing. Does that make it a comparable? <laughs> Think about that. 
Jesus tells it like this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even <laughs> that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You can have the greatest relationship in the world, the best relationship with your husband or wife, and this comparison trap can sneak up and bite you. Let's call it what it is. It's a subtle form of judging. I'm better than you are. You've got a great relationship with your kids, a wonderful relationship with your husband or wife, and you start looking around and comparing. I, th I think he's a little more manly than my husband. Or she's got something my wife doesn't have. Or look at these kids. See how they're behaving? Why can't you guys act like that? We're tempted all the time to take something great in our lives and compare it right out of existence. Compare the joy right out of it. No longer thankful when we think someone's done something better. The truth is you don't see these other kids all the time. And you don't know how that manly guy smells at night. Winston Churchill was once asked, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed to overflowing? Listen to his response. It's quite flattering, replied Sir Winston. But whenever I feel that way, I always remember that if instead of making a political speech, I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as large. Exalt yourself, humble yourself, your choice. It's the test of greatness in the kingdom of God. How does humility handle our sense of entitlement? Jesus said when you're invited to these great banquets where they have a seat at the head table, that's seat of honor, and then a seat near the foot of the table that is nowhere near the seat of honor, you survey the room, you see several seats empty, and a little voice inside of you says, Go for the place of honor. The sacrifices you've made. The many times you've already humbled yourself. You deserve this. All the good you're trying to do, you're entitled. You are owed this. Can I ask you? Do you walk through your life mainly feeling like people owe you? They owe you a certain look? You expect a certain deference because of your success? You think they owe you some respect? Be oh so careful with these kind of phrases like, I expect, or you should defer to me, or you owe me. I'm more. Paul says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. God owes us absolutely nothing. The Bible is very clear in showing us that God didn't walk away from us. We chose to walk away from him. And we continue to do so in the way that we choose to go our own way. The way that we choose to ignore the principles for right living. Those same principles that we call church renewal principles. They're biblical principles. They're principles for right living that God gave us. 
And we can choose to disobey them. We can choose to go our own way if we want. For all of that, the Bible says the outcome, the wage we've earned for our actions of disobedience is death. The price to be paid for our sin, our disobedience to God, is sin. It's death, sorry. But Jesus, who by every measurement was entitled to sit on the throne at the right hand of God, did not consider that something he was owed, but stepped into your shoes and my shoes and died in our place. Until you're stunned, just stunned by that, you will have a sense of entitlement. Your walk through life and your basic orientation will be, somebody owes me here. But as soon as it lands on you with stunning force that you were owed hell, you were owed death, eternal death, and you got heaven instead, at the cost of the life of the Son of God, humility happens. When you come in and see several empty seats, Jesus said, take the lowest place, exalt yourself or humble yourself. Jesus taught us greatness is not a matter of winning a competition. It's a matter of living the life that God gave you to live well. It's a lot more concerned, God is a lot more concerned with who you're helping in the race towards that finish line than who you're ahead of in the race. That's what God's concerned about. Who are you going to help cross the finish line with you when it comes to the end, rather than are you going to get there before somebody else? The whole idea is that we should finish this race together. You exalt yourself. You take the upper hand. Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh, take the lowest place. Notice he doesn't say, be satisfied with the lowest place. If you walk in the room and someone puts you in the last seat, be satisfied with your lot in life. That's not what Jesus said. He said, take, choose, be proactive, take the lowest place. Decide to sit in that lowest place. This is pretty incredible stuff. Remember, humility is not seeing ourselves as less important. It's seeing other people as more important than we are. This isn't about putting yourself down. It's about recognizing that you are third. God, others, me. I'm third. And loving it. Jesus said, when you walk into the room, take the seat at the end of the table. Don't waste your time worrying about honor. You will get the honor you deserve in heaven. You're living your life for an audience of one. Have you forgotten? You have to recognize who you really are before God, and then you also have to recognize who he is. That's a lifetime pursuit. You can spend the rest of your life getting to know God through his word and through relationship with him. Why is humility so important, spending all this time on humility? Because Peter wrote this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Who doesn't want grace? Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up in due time. Do you see the paradox still? Go down. Be low so you can be lifted up. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up in due time. I want grace. I need grace. Boy, do I need grace. If I want grace in my life, it's pretty obvious here. There's a way to get that, and that's to be humble. If I want grace in the first place, I've got to recognize that only Jesus can forgive me of the sins in my life and make my life new. I've got to humble myself to say, I've done wrong things. I have some confession to make. It's humiliating. It's humility. 
I've done wrong things, and I can't make up for them. I need you, God. That's the essential humility in all of our lives that starts our relationship with God. If we want to experience God's grace on a continuing basis, we've got to be humble in everyday kinds of ways. Humility is what helps us see and experience God's grace. Pastor and author Philip Brooks said this about understanding who God is and how it relates to real down low about our humility. He said this, The true way to be humble is not to stoop until you're smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you the real smallness of your greatness. I mean, who cares about the best seat at a wedding reception when you're already a guest of honor at Christ's never-ending and glorious feast in heaven? I mean, who cares? Humility is the mark of greatness. It's the mark of a great leader. It's the mark of a great manager. It's the mark of a great dad and a great mom. It's the mark of a great husband and a great wife. It's the mark of a great friend. Humility is the mark of greatness. Simply put, my greatness, your greatness, our greatness is not measured by the way that we talk. It's not measured even by how many Bible verses we've memorized, although that's a good thing, or even how well we know the Bible. Our greatness is not measured by the accomplishments we have or the recognition that we get or the thoughts that we have. Our love for God and others is the measure of our greatness. I am third. Let us all grow so in, so in awe of the God who is and continues to be attuned to the needs of others and so absorbed ourselves in our mission, that before we know it, we will have forgotten about ourselves altogether. Let us voluntarily today choose the least important seat and let God be the one to do the exalting. Would you bow your heads for a moment? <clears throat> you know by now, I hope, that I love, I just love giving God the last word. So this is in the form of kind of a prayer and a benediction. And I'm just going to read it over you. It's Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 4. Listen to the going low and being lifted up, humility and exalted. These words are in this passage. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Heavenly Father, we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, that we would follow his example. Help us to be your humble servants and walk humbly with you, we pray. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. <laughs>